Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is June 15th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Dennis Wren. And this is an SGMPEDS Extra. The title of today's episode is Hurts So Good. But does it have to? A pain management standard for children. Our guest skeptic today is Dr. Samina Ali, who is a pediatric emergency medicine physician, clinician scientist, and professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Her research focuses on improving assessment and treatment of pain in children, and she is an executive member of Pediatric Emergency Research Canada, or PERC, a pain content advisor for TREK, and a faculty member of BEAM. Boy, you do do a lot of work, but welcome to the show, Dr. Ali. Thank you so much for having me, Dennis. I'm so glad to be able to bring a pain expert like you on because this is such a heavy lift and exciting development for the world of pediatrics, but let's just give our listeners some background. Pain, a common acute and chronic complaint that we see in the emergency department. Whether that's a broken bone, a laceration, abdominal pain, sickle cell vasoocclusive pain, the emergency department, we are very, very familiar with patients experiencing pain. But do we always do such a great job at addressing it? Well, Dennis, despite our best intentions, the answer is unfortunately still no, especially in vulnerable groups. So like seniors, certain ethnicities, patients with mental health issues, and of course, pediatric patients. So while addressing pain, we sometimes also have to perform medical procedures, which ironically lead to more pain. So it's not only what they're presenting with, but also what we're doing in the process of helping them. And this issue is magnified even more in children, where even placing something as simple as an IV can be traumatic and painful, especially when they don't understand what's going on. Uh, We've done studies in the past, and children rate IV insertion as the most difficult part of their hospital journey, even when they have surgery. So it gives you an idea of how big a deal it is for us. So the emergency department can be a really painful place to be for children. And we've covered pediatric pain management on the SGM before multiple times, and another peds EM superhero, Dr. Anthony Crocco from McMaster, did one of his rants on pediatric pain. He sure did. And I remember uh, talking to Ken about some of these on SGEM before, so I'm so thankful SGEM puts children's pain front and center. 80% of children are seen in non-pediatric centers, so this is a problem for all of us, not just those who work in ped centers. Give us some numbers here, Dr. Early. It's estimated that about one in five children develop chronic pain before childhood. So we knew that was true for adults. We now know that that's actually true for children as well. One in five children have chronic pain. And pediatric pain is still one of the most costliest chronic conditions, even more so than asthma and obesity, which get a lot of awareness and attention these days. When kids come into the hospital, uh, when they're admitted, they experience an average of 6.3 painful procedures per day, and it goes up to between 12 to 14 in the ICUs. So we are doing a lot of really tough things to these kids. And even though there's tons of evidence-based best practices for this, and we have national statements from Canadian Pediatric Society, we're still falling short. It just sounds like your description, it's a pain on pain on pain, especially if you end up getting admitted to the hospital from the emergency department. And I have to admit, I was totally ignorant before looking at these pain standards and talking to you, but I had no idea 
that failing to address pain in the emergency department or the acute setting had such bad long-term consequences. Oh, you're not alone, Dennis. I think a lot of us in emergency medicine think short-term, right? Like we need to get this test done. We need to get the IV in to give the antibiotics. We need to do the lumbar puncture to make sure they don't have meningitis. And that's really important. But every one of these medical encounters has consequences for this child's lifetime journey. And when they're young, their lifetime is a long time, right? So some of the most serious consequences of untreated pain in children occur much later than the procedure itself. So we don't get immediate feedback all the time. For example, imagine we have a child who's scared to get an IV. We, can, we might think we can hold the child down, bundle them up, and just quickly get it over because they need their IV fluids or whatever that we think they need that day. So on that day, we might hear a crying and stressed out child, but ultimately they'll settle down and we'll successfully deliver our treatment. And we pat ourselves on the back and we think we're good doctors. But there are consequences to not managing their pain when we're putting in that IV, for example. Poor pain management actually contributes to avoiding medical care in the future and even vaccine hesitancy, which we learned very well the last couple of years has huge consequences for healthcare. This same child, imagine now, if they're unvaccinated because of the fears they've developed on those early ED visits, and may present with serious vaccine-preventable illnesses in the future, and then require even more time and even more resources, not to mention their own morbidity and potential mortality with what they have, right? And there's psychological trauma for everybody as well. And I don't think we talk about that enough. There's trauma for the child, there's trauma for the family, and there's trauma for our healthcare workers as well. Who goes home feeling good about their day when they held down a baby to do a lumbar puncture and they cried and screamed through the whole procedure? Nobody. So there's a psychological trauma for everyone involved. And sometimes I hear that healthcare workers think that uh, treating a child's pain takes up our precious ED time, like it slows down our flow. And in fact, there's solid research to suggest the opposite, that we actually have to repeat procedures less and we get better ED flow and shorter length of stay. So children who receive these interventions to help minimize their pain actually have shorter stays and more satisfying stays with us. And then they're less likely to develop chronic pain syndromes in the future. Yeah, so you listed a laundry list of reasons why we should be prioritizing the treatment of pain. And I also did not realize that the patients who experience chronic pain are also more likely to end up with like mental illness and opioid use and other socioeconomic disparities in adulthood. So are these reasons what prompted Canada to create the world's first pediatric pain management standard. Absolutely. This was a huge motivator. Canada creates about 15% of the world's pediatric pain research. So it made complete sense that we would be the first country in the world to create this national standard. Now, this new standard is divided up into four main themes. So number one is make pain matter. Number two, make pain understood. Number three, make pain visible. And number four, make pain better. That's exactly right. Within each of those four themes, there's specific components. So in the make pain matter, what they're referring to or what we are referring to is creating a framework to provide better care and employing continuous quality improvement. So it's not just a today thing, it's a forever thing. Make pain understood is education and knowledge sharing. As we know, staff turnover and new evidence is created, so that continued understanding of knowledge. Make pain visible 
You can't treat what you don't measure. So we need to assess pain in all of its complex and beautiful ways that we have to adapt for children and then make pain better, which is not just about medications. It's about individualized care plans. So asking that family what works best for their child and then using multimodal pain strategies. So not just pharmacology. So this all sounds fantastic. And we're going to jump into some of the details very soon. I just think probably there's one qualm that Ken might have with these standards, and that's they didn't go up to number five. <laughs> I know. So I thought about that. So I want you to picture four themes, and the fifth one is the child. So the child is overseeing the other four themes. The child is the thumb, and the themes are the four fingers. Does that help, Ken? I love it. I love it. Okay, let's let's talk about some of the details. Let's get in here. So the first point I want to bring up is about the working group and the technical group members. And this was a very, very diverse breadth of stakeholders that were involved in the creation of this standard. And you not only included emergency medicine, you had anesthesia, psychologists, chronic pain physicians, but you also had a lot of our healthcare team members like nurses, physical therapists, pharmacists, child life. And the other super, super important group was that you included the patients and the families. And to me, this really speaks as a, because I love evidence-based medicine. And one of the pillars of EBM is the patient and family values and preferences. So when you have a chance to work with such a multidisciplinary group. Was there any insight provided by a non-physician member that you found particularly enlightening? Absolutely. I'd say, firstly, it was a true privilege to work and learn from such a diverse group. And I think pain lends itself really beautifully to this diverse, multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary group because pain belongs to none of us and it belongs to all of us, right? That's just how it goes. So the more time you spend working in a particular area of research or practice, the more you realize what you don't know. And so this incredible diverse group of individuals really helped me personally understand uh, transitional pain, an entity that I had very little understanding of prior to this working group. I've never even heard of that term. Can you tell me a little bit about transitional pain? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I knew acute pain or procedural pain. So acute pain being, you know, the child who comes in with a sore belly because they have appendicitis. That my eMERGE doc self-understood. Procedural pain, yes. I do painful things. I break skin. I cause pain. Chronic pain, I also understood. These are individuals that have had longer-term pain, usually three months or more. So what transitional pain is, it's that in-between acute pain to chronic pain. And it is a really important time period where if you intervene, you might actually be able to avoid the creation of a chronic pain condition. So imagine a child who has a complex spinal surgery, some kind of a rod surgery, and they're like rods inserted in their back. And that usually leads to a number of weeks of quite acute pain. If we get a really good handle on that acute pain, they may not develop a chronic pain syndrome afterwards. And if we suboptimally manage it, they may actually end up with a long-term chronic pain syndrome. So this is that magical period uh, where we can do some really excellent evidence-based things to improve their outcomes. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That is, you've already expanded my world with just that one point alone. And, and that's exactly what this transdisciplinary, you know, family-inclusive team did for me. They also helped me understand the importance of child participation and family empowerment to advocate in spaces where they may not feel comfortable to do so, right? 
their voice is so strong, but there's a, sometimes a real or perceived power differential. And if we don't give them space, they can't advocate for themselves. Absolutely. So let's talk about the different themes that you have going on now. So the first theme, make pain matter. And in this section, there's a lot of talk about organizational change. And there's a framework that's provided that includes six main points. So one is people-centered care and building trust. Two is policies for pediatric pain management. Three is a culture of patient safety and incident reporting. Four is a pain education curriculum. Five, variety of validated pain assessment tools. And six, goals and objectives for QI around pediatric pain management. Now, these are all kind of broad topics here. So I'd like to ask if you can give some examples at your own institution of some of these practices in action. Oh, yes, please. This is my favorite thing to talk about because knowledge and research is only knowledge and research on paper until we put it into practice. So this is the most exciting part. Organizational support and change is critical to improving children's pain. When your leadership understands that pain affects all children and families in the hospital and that treating it better and preventing it wherever we can makes their experiences better, then you're positioned for success. So the first is that very high-level buy-in. In Alberta, we actually have a provincial policy for sucrose drops and topical anesthetics for IVs. So whether you're seen in one of our province's two PEDS-EDs or whether you go to one of the other 110 or so community EDs, your child can access the pain preventing options, which is amazing. And we're able to do that through a provincial electronic medical record. With that provincial EMR, we can now access these and other pain treatment and prevention policies more readily. I'll tell you at our local ED at the Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, we've worked with our amazing local QI team to create an initiative, and you're going to love this. I know you and Ken are going to love this. It's called Mellow Yellow, and Mellow Yellow encourages the use of non-invasive urine collection in diaper children before catheterizing. And it went over so well that our leadership has recently increased our child life specialist coverage as well. And so they're helping us promote Mellow Yellow and other initiatives at the same time. They call me mellow yellow. Sorry, I, I had to. I had to for the sake of our audience and Ken. <laughs> I, I felt like that was coming. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt. But there are so many ways to do this, Dennis. Like you can do it with education days, roving carts, just-in-time education for staff, posters to empower families to ask for topical anesthetics, um, building pain measures into QI reports. And we're trying all of these things at our hospital. The posters for topical anesthetic cream have been one of our biggest successes. We literally just made posters, laminated them, put them in every room so the family see them. And without fail, every shift, somebody points to the poster and says, can I have that for my blood work? Wow, that is a tremendous accomplishment already. I'm going to take it back because one of the first things that you said is that you really need the buy-in from the high highest level of the organization. And healthcare, you know, it, it's a rough time right now. And so there's so many challenges that all of us are facing and institutions are facing. So how do you convince these organizational leaders that the pain management for children should be a priority? You have to reach their hearts and their minds. And I don't think it's too hard for pain because it affects everybody. There's not a child that walks into the hospital that does not experience some amount of pain or distress, right? They're either nervous coming in or we're actually doing painful things to them or they've come in because they have a painful condition. We know from our most recent studies, like children coming to the emergency department, 60% of them have a painful presentation. So that's right off the bat, six out of 10 of them are in pain when they walk through the doors. 
as I said before, pain belongs to all of us and none of us. So if we don't prioritize it as an institution, it's not going to be addressed. But it also makes sense. It's a really easy sell, honestly, because making children more comfortable reaches the hearts. Who wants to watch a child cry? No one, right? It just makes sense. Now, if you're more administratively minded, improving satisfaction measures, recidivism, and reducing lengths of stay and complications also speaks really nicely to the hospital budget. So it's win-win. I'm definitely in it for the let's not make children cry. (laughs) I can relate to that. Let's move on to our next section, and this is make pain understood. And this section emphasized education around health inequities and mentioned specific groups such as indigenous people of color, immigrants, non-English or French-speaking families, patients who represent all aspects of the gender spectrum, patients with disabilities that also include neurodiverse or developmental disabilities on nonverbal. So I really like that. Yeah, and honestly, this emphasis is very much overdue and very forward-thinking at the same time. So we've we've talked about it a lot. This is a real it's really heartening to see it put into a national standard. We know mostly from American literature, because we don't study it a lot in Canada, that racialized children receive worse pain care. So can you indulge me to give you an example for a moment? Absolutely. Let's hear it. So let's talk about appendicitis, something that is such a common condition in children, and we know that for 99% of children, it's painful. Dr. Monica Goyal in the U.S. did a study of almost 1 million children and showed us that black children with moderate pain were 990 percent less likely to get pain medications than white children, and 80% less likely to get opioids for severe pain. So that was uh, like a huge study. And then Dr. Olubukola Nafiu showed us that black children were 18% more likely than white children to have post-op complications and three times more likely to die after surgery after controlling for comorbidities. And Dennis, these are studies in the last like five to six years. These were otherwise healthy children. That's a, that's very kind of eye-opening, but also discouraging, right? It should it should disturb us in many ways. But I thank you for calling out the research of these two other superstars. Absolutely. And in Canada, we focus a lot on our Indigenous communities as a group that has been marginalized and has received lesser health care. We know that the, that the Canadian Indigenous communities receive um, suffer discrimination and receive worse health care. Cases like Joyce Etchequan from Quebec painfully, painfully showed us that. And being Canadian, acknowledging the existing disparities and discrimination and working to eliminate them is a key message in this standard. And I am so, so proud of that. Now, I do want to highlight a key theme or a term that is used here repeatedly as well. And the standard uses the term evidence-informed rather than evidence-based. And I'm sure this was a deliberate choice on your part. And so can you tell us the difference between these two terms and why you chose to use one over the other? Yeah. So historically, evidence-based medicine refers to critically appraising the literature and choosing therapy based on statistical evidence for its effectiveness and safety. Sounds great, right? As I see it, though, evidence-informed medicine is founded in that very solid foundation of EBM and involves a really important critical conversation with the family to understand how it might fit their needs and goals. And this applies to even antibiotics for an ear infection, let alone, like we'll get into pain in a moment, but let's say, yeah, you have a child who has an ear infection and you need to prescribe them antibiotics. And your antibiotic of choice that you usually use is for three times a day. 
But this family tells you right from the second they walk through the door that this child is an absolute refuser of taking medications, will vomit them immediately, will scream, cry, they have to sit on them, they can't get them into them. So then at that point, you might choose a different medication that's one time a day just to minimize those three fights to one fight a day to treat this, this, right? So now in pain, which is so much more complex and nuanced than even an ear infection, patient family goals, needs, personal circumstances, cultural and religious needs all need to be considered when making a multimodal pain care plan. So I know what you're thinking, Dennis. You're like, Samina, how the heck do I do this in the ED? I do not have time for a two-hour multicultural, culturally sensitive consultation. But we can do it. I promise you, Dennis. All right. I need you to teach me because I, I definitely did have that thought. I was like, how, how in the world am I going to do this? Absolutely. We are not creating multi- multidisciplinary pain care plans for chronic pain. That is out of our scope for sure, for sure, for sure. But asking a parent if they're comfortable to breastfeed or hold a baby through a procedure is easy enough to do even in our chaotic environment, right? You're empowering them to be a part of it or to say, actually, I'm going to have to leave because I might pass out and that's going to make things a lot harder for you. So just introducing those choices and empowering them to make those decisions is a part of this evidence-informed approach. Fantastic. Yeah, I I love that example that you just gave. That sounds infinitely, infinitely doable in the chaos of the emergency department. So the next theme here we have is make pain visible. Now, pain assessment includes both qualitative and quantitative pain measures. And often in pediatrics, we're getting reports of pain from two people, right? Like we're getting the reports of pain from the child, if they're developmentally appropriate, and also the family. Now, there's been previous research that has kind of shown that, well, sometimes maybe the correlation of these reported pain from the child and the caregiver, they don't fully align. So do you have any tips for how to navigate this situation? Absolutely. Ask the child, ask the child, ask the child is always my answer. But if they're not able to respond because they have no words yet, or they have developmental differences, then ask the caregiver. So the parent or their their primary caregiver. Study after study after study has shown us that we as healthcare providers are the least accurate and often underestimate a child's pain. So when we make a mistake, we're, we're underestimating, not overestimating, which leads to undertreatment. But at the same time, also remember a healthy five-year-old's 10 out of 10 pain is not the same as yours, right? They've had less painful experiences to draw on. So if the worst thing that's ever happened to you before you broke your arm is you stubbed your toe on the coffee table, you might say your buckle fracture is 10 out of 10. That doesn't mean that they need IV opioids. You have to use your clinical judgment to contextualize their rating, get input from the family, and um, have an understanding of what they've tried and if it helped, and then escalate from there as needed. For our nonverbal children and infants, I think they need a little bit of special attention. We have observational scales, which are often used by our nursing colleagues as they involve a certain amount of training to employ, and our nursing colleagues are provided training in that. But we can, in the absence of that, ask the family. They know their kids better than we ever could. Right. So just just to reemphasize what you said, number one is ask the patient, ask the child themselves. And if they can't give a good answer, then ask the caregiver. And then, oh my gosh, if you can't find the caregiver, unfortunately, then it's me. And I'm probably the least reliable when it comes to actually getting an accurate estimation of a child's pain. Correct. Except it's not just about you, Dennis. It's all of us. (laughs) Well, that makes me feel a little bit better. (laughs) 
Now, another part of this standard also emphasizes reassessment and tracking about whether there are changes in pain intensity. And that makes sense, right? Because we're not just like, oh, you're in pain here, have this intervention, medication, whatnot, and whoop-de-doo, we're we all good. We, we want to make sure that it's actually working and having some effect. And so many pain assessment tools use a numerical scale to help rate pain. And do you find these scales clinically useful or should we just try to be, let's simplify it. Like, should we just be asking, is your pain better, worse, the same? I think there's a role for both. The verbal numerical rating scale is the gold standard for older children and adults who understand numerical order, that four is smaller than six and that two is bigger than zero, right? And it works great when they get that. We can often tell when a child is struggling with the scale though. So sometimes I'll switch gears. So I might start asking them for a numerical rating And if they're kind of looking really confused or they're giving me numbers that just don't make sense, then I'll switch to, is it better, worse, or the same? And the advantage of using scales, whether they're numerical or face-based, rather than better, worse, or the same, is that there's more granularity so we can figure out the extent of the improvement or lack of improvement a lot better. Gotcha. That makes sense. So definitely a rule for both the reported better, worse, same, and also the numeric scale. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to our next theme, which is make pain better. And this section emphasizes partnership with the child and the family in developing an individualized care plan that everyone is held accountable to. Now, you refer to something called a best possible medication history or BPMH. And I, I'm not familiar with this term, and I imagine there's other people who might not be familiar with it as well. Can you tell us what this means? Absolutely. Uh, BPMH acknowledges that it's not always easy to get an accurate medication history, and anyone who's spent a day in the emergency knows this. It asks us to compile it from at least two sources. This could be like the EMR and then asking the patient. So it's not super complex, but it allows you to make sure that you're making safer choices for the patient, as they sometimes forget, right? Um, Are you on an opioid? No. Um, I see in your EMR, it says you have oxycodone. Oh, right, that one. Yes, I do use it. And all of a sudden, you have a much more comprehensive picture of what's going on. That totally makes sense. And the other part that I really liked about this were the strategies for multimodal pain management. And that included some really, really great charts that people should check out. Oh, I love them too. I think it's so important to recognize and put into practice that pain care does not equate with pain medications, simply that there's so many other things that we can do that might wholly treat the pain or decrease the need for analgesic agents for sure. Now, I do want to kind of highlight the psychosocial strategies because I feel like they might be a challenge to implement. And so who do you think is responsible for instituting those strategies? Is it child life, psychiatry, psychology? Do you think all children need it? So like, for example, the child that's coming in with a broken arm versus the one that's presenting with an acute exacerbation of their chronic pain. Yeah. So some psychological strategies may seem daunting in a busy emergency. I'm going to be honest, I am certainly not providing biofeedback or hypnotherapy there, but we all use distraction all the time and we are experts in it. We just may not label it as such. So whether it's child life specialists coming in and using some like very fancy seek and find digital toy to engage the child, or whether it's me playing a Coco Melon video off of Netflix on my phone, depending on the child, it can be really, really engaging and can do the job. Some kids who love animals, for instance, I've created a photo album on my iPhone of my pets, and there are many, doing really funny things. And I just give them the album and they flip through the photos. And for some, that's completely distracting. I've done it at home as well. When my daughter was younger, she needed like every six-month blood work. 
And when she was much younger, we would apply topical anesthetic and then watch funny animal videos on YouTube till she was about 13 or so. And then she's like, mom, I don't really need the anesthetic anymore. The needle doesn't bother me so much, but definitely hold my hand and play the videos still. So distraction can be incredibly powerful. You know, based on your description, I feel like I'm going to want to see this photo album and uh, YouTube collection of videos because I'm also a fan of funny animals and can <laughs> I, I can probably use the distraction sometimes myself during an ER shift. Um, yes, I have been known to sit in a corner and watch five minutes of funny videos to recharge once in a while. <laughs> oh, yes. Wellness, different things <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> now, we covered a lot of big themes here, but I want to bring it back to the clinical practical application. So I'm going to throw a few clinical scenarios at you, and I'm going to ask that you give us some advice on what these themes look like in practice. Does that sound good? Absolutely. Applying these new pain standards to practice does not have to be hard. Okay, here we go. Child number one is coming in, and uh, this is a needle phobic child, but unfortunately, we got to get some blood. Yeah. So if they have a true, true needle phobia versus a needle fear, that's a really big deal. And they probably have some psychology involvement in this sort of thing. Most kids that come into the emergency department have bad needle fears. And if this child often receives blood work and has a history of struggling with it, they might come in with a coping plan. And while that sounds kind of complicated, it isn't. It's usually just a simple plan developed with child life or psychology and it involves the same core principles that this standard focuses on, which are physical, psychological, and pharmacologic options, including family in the creating of the plan and individualizing the plan to the child. So this is a best case scenario as the figuring out has already been done and you just have to make it happen. And these plans use simple things like comfort positions, having a parent close by, holding on to a favorite toy, using numbing cream, deciding whether you look or don't look when the procedure is done, and the color of your bandage. And these kind of things are enough to often empower a child to feel safer during a procedure and tolerate the procedure. If you don't have a plan and you do have access to a child life specialist, ask them to see the family early and help educate and plan for the procedure. We have child life specialists in the room with us for many IVs and blood work procedures, and it's awesome because they are the experts in child comfort and pain. But the things that do work, even if they can't be present with you, are numbing creams, distraction, comfort positions, and prizes. Things that don't work, by the way, are threats. You better be still or I'm going to poke you again. Please, we never want to hear those words again. Oh, that just sounds mean. Very mean. Right? And I've heard it. I've heard it, right? Holding a child against their will and lying and saying that it won't hurt. You may get through the procedure today but they will never trust a healthcare team again. Thank you again for bringing it back to like those long-term consequences. And I do love child life specialists, but I will say that many of the things that you mentioned, the options that you're giving them to hold their toy, have their parent close by, hold a hand, you know, those are all actually very doable, just even if you don't have those child life specialists. Child number two is coming in for you now, and this is a child with appendicitis. Okay, so these are often school-aged children, and we can ask them to quantify their pain, but do it early, not after the ultrasound confirms the diagnosis, as sometimes happens, because imaging is often the most painful part of a care journey, and we sometimes forget about them because they're out of the department. So do it early, get their analgesia on board, knowing that someone's going to poke their appendicitis. 
use physical measures. So warm blankets, either wrapped around the child or directly on their belly, keeping their favorite person or their favorite stuffy close by. These things make a big difference in modulating how we experience pain. They will likely need blood tests. So using maxiline as a topical anesthetic and distraction. Using NSAIDs along with opioids are my biggest flex. (laughs) They lessen the amount of opioids that are needed overall and decrease adverse events. And of course, we want to engage the family throughout and have brief but important conversations about what they want us to use to help with the pain and distress. Fantastic. Three is a little bit more of a challenge here, but this is the infant that's coming in and needs the full septic workup. So this is the lumbar puncture, blood draw, and urine. And this is obviously a baby now. So how in the world am I going to explain this to a baby? Yeah, this is a group I worry about a lot because they have no agency in what can be done to them and they depend on adults, so you, me, and their parents, to make good decisions for them. And being so young, they also have the greatest potential for long-term negative impacts, right? Because just simply based on length of life to be lived. So we need to advocate for them and empower their caregivers to do the same. We want to batch the procedures and do them together if possible. So our nurses at our institution will do one after the other after the other in a big lump and get it done and over with, assuming they're hemodynamically stable enough to tolerate that. We want to use numbing creams, sucrose drops, breastfeeding, comfort positions, and for the love of all things, no more burrito wrapping. Burrito wrapping is for making your lunch, not treating children. To be clear, swaddling a child for comfort is different from burrito wrapping, which is restraining a child in a blanket for a procedure. We can ask the caregiver if they want to stay in the room and participate. They can breastfeed their child through the procedures like IV insertion and blood work. They could administer sucrose drops for others that can't be done while a parent is breastfeeding, like urinary catheterization. And they can also comfort and hold the baby before and after procedures, which can really help them. So we have lots of options. We just have to think about them. Thank you for giving us another breath of the available options for us. And again, many of these are highly practical, right? Like we, this is all accomplishable. It's not, does not need to be super complex. All right. So the last child that I have for you is coming in with an arm fracture that needs a reduction. Oh boy. These poor kiddos go through so much in a short amount of time. Usually their day starts off having a fantastic day where they're participating in a sport or an activity they enjoy. They're at the park. And then it ends with needles and casts and procedural sedations. Like it it gets heavy. There's a lot for them to process and they can be pretty stressed out. And in fact, one of my colleagues is doing some research into how these children with seemingly trivial injuries, like a simple fracture or a concussion can develop PTSD-like symptoms after. So for these kiddos, if you need an IV, do all the great things we already talked about, numbing creams and distraction and stuff. Or you could try a non-IV method of sedation if it seems appropriate for the injury. So for some single arm bone fractures and shoulder dislocations or patellar dislocations, for instance, I've had great success with intranasal fentanyl and nitrous oxide alone. It precludes the need for an IV. Um, But if it's a more complex situation, you do need an IV med. Ketamine is always my first choice. It's just hemodynamically one of the safest medications we have for procedural sedation. Importantly, this is an opportunity to reframe memories as well. And I think we don't think about that a lot in emergency, but going back to our earlier conversation about how short-term things we do in the emergency can affect long-term outcomes for children, this is a chance we can do something positive. So we know the words we use can change how a child recalls a painful event. So reinforcing how brave they were and drawing their attention to something positive like a prize 
or the cool color of their cast or the popsicle they got when they were no longer NPO can help pull their attention away from negative aspects and form memories away from the painful aspects of the day and towards the more positive ones. Yeah, absolutely. I love I love those last points. I feel like, uh, you know, one thing I've learned, never talk about food because these poor children are probably have been NPO for God knows how many hours and nobody needs that reminder when they still can't eat. And uh, I feel like I've had so many good superhero or cartoon discussions in the course of things that really kind of just take their mind off of what's going on. Absolutely. What you're doing is so powerful, Dennis, right? It's the power of distraction. And so before we conclude our show, I do want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us about such an important topic and both giving, you know, big, broad themes, but also giving us the practical clinical application as well. But I think I have one last question for you, and this one might be a bit of a doozy. We know that it takes over a decade for knowledge translation. So what strategies is this work group using to see that the standards you've developed are not just implemented in Canada, but around the world? Ah, Dennis, the billion-dollar question. There are so many ways. Currently, the standard is a voluntary national standard with Accreditation Canada, against which any institution can be assessed. I would expect that it will become a mandatory standard in the coming years, but that process takes some time. Our hospital, Stollery, is currently working towards Childkind International Certification, which allows us to dedicate time and resources to get all our pain and distress ducks in a row across the hospital. We work with quality improvement teams to bring pain care initiatives that they care about, such as the commitment to comfort or comfort promise, which are ways to improve child pain care as a little package deal. That's how we can get our own house in order. Internationally, the standard included some international members, so we know they'll be nudging their own countries. We are presenting it at international forums such as the ISPP, which is um, the International Society for Pediatric Pain this fall. Uh, we're working with knowledge mobilization networks such as Solutions for Kids in Pain to share it. And Skip was a key partner in writing this standard. We're using social media like Twitter, a newspaper, media outlets, so lots of different ways. Basically, uh, multimodal, just like good pain care is. Well, I'm very honored that the SGM gets to also take part in this process and get the amazing work that you and your team have done out there. And obviously, you know, the the main thing, like you said, this all comes down to the child and we just, nobody likes a child in pain and nobody likes a child suffering. And And I think we have things that we can all do to improve our pain management in the emergency department. Absolutely. So Dr. Ali, I want to thank you one more time for taking the time to join us. It was fantastic talking to you and thank you for those pearls of wisdom. Thank you so much for this opportunity to chat about one of my favorite things, Dennis. Now the SGM will be back next episode doing a structured critical appraisal of a recent publication, trying to cut the knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year using the power of social media. So patients get the best care based on the best evidence. And before we go, do you mind giving us the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.